Clay, Mary, beautiful. Thank you all for your singing this morning. Lifted, lifted my heart. Have you ever been in or observed a, a major confrontation between between people? I was thinking about this in in preparation for the for the message this morning. To a certain degree, I think that you can say we like confrontation that's controlled because we we like boxing matches or the Super Bowl is coming up. It's a great confrontation and there's a there's a lot of build up. I think what makes us uncomfortable is when a confrontation is is uncontrolled. The the outcome is unknown and maybe one in which which we're in, in involved. One where there's a lot of build-up people know the confrontation is coming and everybody braces for it and the, the, the stakes are very, very high. One of the famous confrontations between world leaders in, in recent history was that of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, the communist leader of Russia. There had been much build-up back in the late 70s and early 80s between the two countries, including a nuclear arms race. There was advances of Russian communism throughout the world, and then we responded with a, with a counter-offensive. A lot of that's uh, being brought back up in people's minds with the, the change in, in the, uh, our administration's approach to Cuba. Gorbachev advanced the Soviet Empire's gain of, of influence, and, and at the peak, there was about ten countries that, that were caught in its orbit. Uh, South Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, uh, Yemen, it's been in the news recently, um, some in Africa, and Nicaragua, Grenada, and also Afghanistan. Um, and the position of Gorbachev, he said that we would never lose a, a single country that came under communist sway uh, to the, again to the capitalist West. Reagan, in turn, defined the Soviet Union as his famous phrase, the evil empire. You remember that, those of you. And he said in one speech, the West, must, the West won't contain communism, it will transcend communism. It will dismiss it as some bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages are even now being written. Reagan had a way with, with words. And when, when Reagan dubbed Russia as the evil empire, as evil, he faced backlash even in his own country. Co uh, columnist, almost said communist, uh, maybe so. Columnist Anthony Lewis of the New York Times <laughs> was so indignant at Reagan's formulation that he searched through his repertoire to, for an appropriate adjective, simplistic, sectarian, dangerous, outrageous, finally settling on primitive. It's the only word for it, he said. Reagan's confrontational approach was called unrealistic and dangerous by many. At a table in Geneva, November 1985, Reagan knew that he would face Gorbachev and that, that he was a tough negotiator. And so in that meeting, he made a, he made a choice to set aside the, the State Department's briefing book full of diplomatic language, and, and Reagan confronted Gorbachev directly. He said, quote, What you're doing in Afghanistan and burning villages and killing children is genocide, and you are the one who has to stop it, according to an aide that was present, that wrote about it later, 
said Gorbachev looked at, at Reagan with a stunned expression on his face. No one had ever spoken to him like that. Reagan also threatened Gorbachev in that meeting. He said, quote, we won't stand by and let you maintain weapon superiority over us. He told him, we can agree to reduce arms or we can continue the arms race, which I think you know you can't win. The extent of which Gorbachev took Reagan's remarks to heart became obvious in October of 1986 at the Reykjavik summit. There, Gorbachev astounded the arms control establishment in the West by accepting Reagan's zero option. No one likes confrontation. I think if you do, you're, you're a little messed up, really. But sometimes it's necessary, isn't it? Reagan knew appeasement never quells an aggressor. It only invites further aggression. I would note something our current administration probably should take to heart in facing radical Islam. Yet in those moments of confrontation, like in this, you see this picture in Geneva and in Iceland where, where all of the pomp and circumstance is there, all of the counselors are there, everyone is saying, say this and don't say that. You have two men that are, that are the leaders and they're, being, they're confronting one another. Two opposing ideas, two completely different worldviews and completely different positions. And in those moments, decisions are made either to that can correct the problem or, or make it worse. In confrontation, people either reconcile to the truth that's, that's being presented to them, like Gorbachev did, or they harden to it, like you will see Pharaoh do today in the book of Exodus. With long anticipation, we're returning to our foundation series and and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7 this morning, as, as Matt read for us. And the last time we left off in Exodus chapter 6, God told Moses that, that he would confront Pharaoh and ultimately be the one who would lead the people out of, of, of Egypt. But there's a slight problem, if you remember, in Moses' mind. He had been rejected by his own people. He had been subject to friendly fire. The, the people of Israel had rejected him. Even the leaders, the foremans of Israel, had rejected Moses. So in his mind, how could he confront the most powerful man in the world? And yet God assured Moses that, that he would be the one who would accomplish the deliverance, and Moses just needed to carry the message and do exactly what the Lord, the Lord told him to do. We're only going to be covering the, the first 13 verses of Exodus chapter 7 because that's the, that's the first section of this, of this new, new page. We're, we're seeing Israel in Egypt, which goes all the way through, through chapter 12, but we're just coming into that exciting portion of the, of the narrative where, where you're going to have the plagues and the confrontation between Yahweh and the gods, little g, of, of Egypt and how, how God makes himself known and declares who he is. And this is, the, this is the initial confrontation. There are three scenes in verses 1 through, through 13 of, of chapter 7. And there's, it's very easy to, to see where the breaks are. First is, is, has God speaking? Verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, 
And that speech continues down through verse verse 5. And then you see the second scene, or the second break in the narrative, is found in verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron did so. so. Now you're going to transition from the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron to Moses and Aaron carrying out the Lord's commands. And then, at the very end, you you find Pharaoh. Look, if you would, at verse 11. They appear before Pharaoh, but Pharaoh also caused the white called the wise men and sorcerers and the, magi- uh, the magicians of, of Egypt. So you have, you have three scenes here. God, the main character, Moses and, and Aaron, and then, and then Pharaoh. And this passage really shows a confrontation with God. Pharaoh meets the Lord, and he meets the Lord through, through God's authoritative representative and his prophet, Aaron. And I'm going to show you what the Lord teaches us from each of those, of those passages. And first, God foretells His, His plan. God foretells His plan in verses 1 through 5. Look at, look if you would at, at verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command you. After the genealogy in, in chapter 6, which is kind of like a victory lap before the race even starts, God is saying, these are my people, these are the ones that I'm going to, to lead out. Moses has reiterates his concerns at the end of chapter 6, and this is God responding to Moses in verses 1 through 5. The Lord responds to Moses. Now watch the flow of what God says, because he foretells what's going to take place. He actually foretells his plan. He shows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and and tells Moses exactly what will take place. And then you're going to watch it unfold just as the Lord tells us it will take place. The Lord said to Moses, I have made you as God and and you will will speak all that I command you and and Aaron shall be your, your prophet. Aaron shall tell Pharaoh. That's the first thing that's going to happen. I'm going to... I'm going to make you my authoritative representative, and Aaron is going to speak on your behalf. And look at verse 3, because here's the next section. And as you do that, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and the result will be he will not listen to you. And the purpose is then given in verse 4. But, but Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the, the children of Israel." Gives the entire picture before it even happens. And he even gives the reason he's doing it all. It's so that that these these unsaved Egyptians, those worshiping false gods, will know that he is the one true and living God. Since Moses is a representative with divine authority, Aaron is his prophet. Talks about Pharaoh's heart and how he will deliver. And God's answer to Moses of his concern, he begins with this. He's going to enhance Moses' stature. 
You may have heard this this story about the Pope. The Pope is in a car one day, and, and he always wanted to drive fast, so he asked the chauffeur if he could drive the car. He gets in the car, and he goes 100 miles an hour, and there is a faithful policeman who is there who, who immediately pulls him over, and the policeman walks up to the car, and, and the Pope rolls down the window, and the policeman leans in, and he sees it's the Pope. And he says, excuse me for one moment. And he goes back to the patrol car, picks up his radio, and says, uh, I've got somebody very important here. I, I don't know who it is, but the Pope is his chauffeur. That's exactly what's happening here. Pharaoh is to think when Moses comes into, into his presence, this, this guy's important enough that he's got a spokesman. See, see Moses pleads with the Lord that he's a, he's a man of, of uncircumcised lips. He can't speak well. And, and, and God allows Aaron to come along. And God will not even use that in, in the presence of, of Pharaoh. But as he increases Moses' stature before the eyes of Pharaoh, he will also increase the hardness of, of Pharaoh's heart. And you can clearly see that in verse 3. I will harden the heart of, of Pharaoh. Now, I made a chart for you that, that goes through all of the different verses in, in this passage of Exodus um, that shows in the story, in the narrative, where where Pharaoh's heart is is hardened. Those guys are going to get the chart up for you. You may not be able to may not be able to see it. If you want a copy of this, I'll be happy to give it to you. But in the first column, there is I will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's just a declaration that God makes all the way back in chapter four. Makes it again in, in chapter seven and in chapter fourteen. And then the second column there where it says God, is all of the different passages in the narrative that specifically attributes the hardening to the Lord. It says, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The next column there is just a general statement. Pharaoh's heart was, was hardened. It doesn't attribute it to the Lord or, or to Pharaoh himself. And then the last column are all of the places in the narrative where where it's attributed to Pharaoh, where it says Pharaoh hardened his, his heart in, in response to the Lord. Three times it says God will, will do it. Six times the Bible tells us that God did it. Seven times it, it just makes a statement that it happened. And three times it says Pharaoh hardened his, hardened his own heart. Now, if you just look at the text... You can do the math. Nine times it's attributed to God, and three times it's attributed to Pharaoh. But that really doesn't answer the question that typically comes in our heart, right? The question that comes in our heart when we read this 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 passage or look at any of this of this narrative is: so did God do it, or did Pharaoh do it? Right? That's what you ask. That's what I ask whenever I come upon that that passage. What we're saying is: who's responsible? Uh, can Pharaoh? In all of these passages where it says God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, can, can Pharaoh stand before the Lord one day and say, I'm not guilty, you hardened me, who can resist your will? Does Pharaoh have the right to do that based upon what this clearly, clearly says here? The answer, I think, to, to, to the dilemma, if you will, it's not really a dilemma to the Lord. It's, it's in our own mind. I think it's found in Romans chapter 1. So if you want to turn over to Romans chapter 1, 
I'll walk you through it briefly. The New Testament is like a commentary on the Old Testament in a number of places, and and clearly this is 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 one of those one of those moments. Romans chapter one verse eighteen describes how the heart of a sinful human being responds to the truth of God. In Romans 1.18, after that great passage which talks about I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel is the power of God into salvation, it, it turns to the other side of the coin. In verse 18 it says, while the gospel of Christ is the power of God, the wrath of God is also revealed. In verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what do you mean by that, Paul? Because what may be known of God is plain, is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God has clearly shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, Psalm 19 tells us, His attributes, His visible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made. There's the, the witness in creation, even His eternal power and Godhead. And catch this last phrase in verse 20, so that they are without excuse. Pharaoh had the knowledge of God and and it was even confirmed to him. And you're going to see God's amazing grace as he sends Moses and even and even confirms to to Pharaoh his message. But Pharaoh rejected it. And just like in Romans one, he exchanged the truth for for a lie. And you can read verses twenty one through twenty two how that takes place and well, this sure applies to Egypt. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. We're, we're much more sophisticated than that today. We like to have other idols of, of success or self-help or whatever it might be. But look at verse 24. There was Pharaoh's part. Now look at God's part. Verse 24. Therefore, because Pharaoh did these things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, or gave him up to, to uncleanness and lust in their hearts. Three times it uses this idea of God giving them over or giving them up. That's how God hardens. Pharaoh is fully responsible for his own rejection. He's without excuse. That's what Romans 20 says. Every human being is without excuse and fully responsible for their, their own rejection regardless of how much gospel they have. It's, it's inherent in them, in the law written on their heart, and even in creation. He suppressed the truth in his unrighteousness, and because of that, the wrath of God is being revealed, which is God's judgment. And that judgment is giving him what he wanted. Isn't it gracious of the Lord to not give us what we want? <laughs> I am so thankful that God doesn't give me what I want but he gives me exactly what I need. So he gives him over to his own unbelief. The more he pursued it, the more God removed his restraint. And you can see that in our society. The more we turn to, to immorality, the more the Lord gives our society over to even more and more debased things. Don't think it's going to stop with homosexual marriage. It's going to go far beyond that, to plural marriage, to bestiality, to all manners of things. So... That's what I think it means when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, Pharaoh's heart wasn't neutral to begin with. 
You know, don't think Pharaoh's just some good guy. He's just sitting back there searching for the truth, wondering what's going to happen. Pharaoh's not neutral, and neither are you. His heart responded to the knowledge of God with rejection and unrighteousness, and God just didn't do anything. He, he gave him over to his, own, to his own sinfulness. So you can say clearly, I think based upon Romans 1, that, that Pharaoh is fully accountable for his own heart, fully responsible. No way that he can stand before the Lord one day and say, you did this to me. He did it to himself, even when God witnessed to it. Everybody probably has no problem seeing that. But here's where the tweak comes in. God could have intervened, couldn't He? God could have restrained Him in His mercy, but He didn't. And so you turn over to Romans chapter 9, verse 14. I think you get the other side of the coin. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Paul is anticipating here, and I know this is deep water, but it's the commentary on, on our passage this morning. Paul is anticipating what we will say or how our hearts will respond to the idea that, that God could have intervened and could have restrained in mercy, but He didn't in Pharaoh's case. Pharaoh is fully responsible, fully accountable. He rejected the witness in creation and even rejected the witness in with Moses, as you will see, and God just gives him over to his own desires. He doesn't restrain him. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. I mean, Paul anticipates the accusation that, that people make. If God could turn a man, but He doesn't, is He unjust? Is God unjust because He allows the heathen, the people that have never heard the gospel, go to hell? Is God unjust? No. Romans 1 says that they're without excuse. There's a witness that's, that's there. So are you more favored because... You have been shown mercy. You're clearly, we would say, we give God thanks for it. Look at verse 15. Moses, for he says to Moses, here's our passage, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. He's just saying to Moses, I'm God. I'm not unrighteous in showing mercy in any way. And you put both of those passages together, you can, you can read on, so that it's not of him who wills or of him who turns, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I've endured you for this very purpose that I might be known. So you put both of them together. God in His mysterious wisdom can allow one man like Pharaoh to continue in his sin and not intervene and be absolutely just, and he can serve as a witness of God's righteousness and judgment of sin, and another man like you or like me, he does intervene by, by grace, and when he does, it's a show of mercy. But God is not responsible for any man's rejection, as Romans 1 tells us. He makes himself known, and they choose by their own choice to reject him, and in doing so, he just gives them what they want. So God gets the glory in salvation, and He's absolutely just in, in judgment. There is not a single saint in heaven 
but saved by grace, and there's not a sinner in hell that didn't get there by his own doing. As Spurgeon said, there is no reason why I should be saved or you should be saved, but God's own omnipotent will and merciful heart. But if God deals with any man severely, as you see it in the Scriptures with Pharaoh, it is because that man deserves all he gets. No reply, but that can ever be true. In hell there will not be a solitary soul that will say to God, O Lord, Thou hast treated me worse than I deserve. Every man that loses heaven gives it up himself, and every man that gains heaven is a debtor to grace. And so God responds to Pharaoh's own desires, and in that way God is not blamed. Turn back to Exodus chapter 7. And I'll show you this next scene. You're going to see how Pharaoh hardens his own heart in just a moment. And now we're going to see how Moses and Aaron obey the Lord. God foretells what's going to take place. Before it ever happens, He gives the reason and the result. He's... he's He's not going to turn Pharaoh so that he might pour out judgments on Egypt so that when he does and he delivers Israel, the the reason will be so that they will know that he is is Yahweh. If God would have done, would have turned Pharaoh, then Egypt might say, ah, gracious Pharaoh, look 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 at how wonderful our leader is. He lets the poor slaves go. And so God in His wisdom declares through this process of, of plagues and, and otherwise that He is the Lord. Verse 6, Moses now comes on the stage. Then Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded him. Now look down at verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh... And they did so just as the Lord commanded. Now there's a there's a bookend. It's like it's like a frame. This this scene that is attributed to Moses and Aaron, what they're going to do, it gives us some detail. They were they were eighty years old, eighty plus years old when they did. It's the emphasis in this from beginning to end is the Lord or Moses did just as the Lord commanded in verse six. And again at the end, he did just as the Lord commanded. As Moses and Aaron will obey the the Lord, Pharaoh will not. Moses will show us something different from Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as we're going to come in the next scene, will show us what hardening your heart looks like, and Moses shows us what softening your heart looks like. Now remember, Moses is not too fired up about this mission, right? I mean, the Lord just had to give him this speech to calm his fears. I mean, he is still talking about uncircumcised lips at the end of chapter 6. I mean, who am I? How can I go? The people are rejecting me. Even the leaders of Israel are rejecting me. How can I go? And yet you find here, with the, the voice of the Lord, Moses doesn't respond to the own voice in his heart, his own voice in his heart, or his own fears. He, he does just as the Lord commanded him. He yields his heart, if you will, to the Lord and follows exactly what God commands him to do. When God gives a command, 
when God tells you what to think, when He tells you to listen to His words, when that sinful rebellion that's a remnant of the unredeemed flesh rises up in your heart and puts the stops up, you should be like Moses. Your response is, is to listen to the Lord and lay down your arms and follow after what, what God would say. If you don't, and you dig your heels in, and you reject, you can find yourself in a very, very dangerous position. How does a person go from sitting on a pew like this morning, listening to the Word of God? How does a person go from, from giving, from witnessing, from all of those other things to, to not attending church and, and having no care for the Lord? Well, they didn't just wake up one morning and decide to do that. It's a process. How can you go from desiring to be around believers and, and, and attending services in, in, in a regular order to only going periodically? Well, it happens through a process. It's the frog in the water pot, as, as, the, as the proverb says. It happens a little bit at a time. But each time God is faithful to say, be careful, be careful. And when you listen to that, you know your heart, what do you mean be careful? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to fall, I'm not going to do. Be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. The Bible warns us of that. And we, we hear the Lord, we lay down our arms and say, okay, Lord, you know best, you know right. I'll do exactly as you command. Or we dig in and our heart gets a, gets a, gets a uh, sheath over it. And then another, and then another. And, and then it turns from soft and pliable to follow the Lord to, to calloused. The good thing is that the Lord can take a calloused heart. He can even take a heart of stone. And He can turn it soft again. I thought of Woody whenever I was reading verse 7. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83. When they spoke to, to Pharaoh, you think of Ashton as well, Wally Saunders, several others. And obviously... Their life expectancy is a little bit longer than yours. But the point is, you're never too old to serve the Lord, obey the Lord, and go for the Lord. Amen? Amen. He doesn't give you age and wisdom and the hoary head, as they say, to just sit there and grow moss or mushrooms or anything else. He gives you that to, to be a, a voice of wisdom and to go. Let me give you the third scene before I run out, of, run out of time. You go from the what a softened heart looks like, the obedience of Moses and Aaron, to this third scene, which is Pharaoh's disregard. Here you really get to the crux of Pharaoh's disregard at God's message in this confrontation. In confrontation, decisions are made. Little itty-bitty decisions that can either move you away from the Lord or toward the Lord. God was gracious to Pharaoh. If you would at verse 9. When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. 
And so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh called the wise men, wise men, the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Now look at how gracious God is. Pharaoh already has a witness of God in creation. And he sends a direct representative. The Pope is the chauffeur in Pharaoh's case. He sends a direct representative. You, Moses, will stand as my representative, divine authority, and a mouthpiece to speak. And then he provides supporting evidence. This is not just some crazed guy who is claiming to speak on behalf of God. Here's evidence. Here's, here's support for the message Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron prove that they are representatives of God by working a miracle. And God already knows what Pharaoh will do. He already knows what he'll do with the message, but God sends it anyway. He comes to him personally. He speaks to him directly. He gives him proof. And he didn't have to do that. But he's being gracious to Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh will reject. I thought of a friend of mine. One afternoon... While, while driving a road that I normally drove to go home, um, I was on a road that, that an unsaved friend of mine uh, lived on. And, and, and I was already converted. And this is a guy I used to run around with before Christ. And, and this guy knew about my conversion. He was about the same age as I was. And we were, I was in my 20s. He was, he was in his 20s too. And I'd witnessed to him before. And the, the closer I got to his home, the more impressed I, I felt to stop and, and share, share Christ with him. And so when his driveway came up, I just, I just pulled in. I stopped at his home and knocked on the door. And he was there alone. And he came to the door and we sat down at his, at his kitchen table. It was there. And, and after some small talk, I told him why I'd come. I, I said, Gareth, I, I've come to appeal to you, you know, once again that that you would that you would turn to Christ, you know, what the Lord's done in my life, and I've told you what you know, Gareth. And I just started sharing the gospel with him, and in empower, and and um, it was one of those odd moments. There are times when you share the gospel, and you share it, and you're faithful, and that's your responsibility. And, and you don't know what God does or He doesn't. There are other times, like in this case, where, where it was very evident that the Lord was, was at work. And after about 15 minutes, he, he came under such conviction that he was visibly shaking. See, few people do that, and he's one of them. And, and he, he held out his hand, and, and he, he said, I can't hold my hand still. He was having a party that night, and there were many friends coming over. This was probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and he, and he had a keg of beer on ice in the garage, and, and now he didn't know what to do. He, he said, I, I want to, but, but I just don't know what to do. And, and with all compassion and authority, I just, I just looked at him and said, 
said, Gareth, God has given you another opportunity to repent and turn to Him. And it's no mistake that I stopped. I said, bow your head right here, right now, and turn to Christ. And, and you can walk out of here and walk right into that garage and pour the beer out. And when those people show up tonight, you can tell them that, that you gave your heart to Jesus and that there's going to be no party. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And he paused for what seemed like a long time, and he hung his head, and he just said, Brian, I just, I just can't do that. And I said, then you can't come to Christ. I don't know what, God else, what else would God would have to do to convince you, <laughs> or to convince Him. And, and I prayed with Him, and I prayed that, that the Lord wouldn't leave Him alone until He repented. And I went on with my life, and I never saw Gareth again, and... I'd already moved to Lynchburg and started in seminary. Three or four years later, I got a phone call, and there was a strange voice on the line and said, I said, hello, is this Brian Farrell? And I, I said, yes. The man on the other line was, was Gareth. He said, do you remember several years ago whenever you stopped by my house and you talked with me about Jesus? I said, yeah, it was like yesterday. And he said, it, it took me a while to find your number, but I never forgot that time. And this past Sunday, I gave my life to Christ. And you were the first person that I wanted to call. Thank you for stopping and sharing. And we wept together. And after a short conversation, we, we hung up. I wonder how many times God's been gracious to you like He was to Gareth or Pharaoh. How many times God has brought you a personal message. He's confirmed it some way in your life through His Word. And yet, you said, I just can't. And you refused to listen. You see, like the, like the rich man, my friend Gareth was confronted with a choice between the idol of his heart and Christ. And when given that choice, he, he chose his idol. And when we do, we usually follow a pattern like you see Pharaoh here. Pharaoh first deflected, and then he self-deceived, and then that gave him the basis to disregard God's message. I'll give you wood at verse 11. Pharaoh called the wise men. He got a clear message from the Lord, the Lord's representative, a prophet of God. It was confirmed in Pharaoh, verse 11, but... Pharaoh, rather than turning, called the wise men, called a counterfeit to justify his disregard. And this passage gives a deadly pattern that sinners follow. When confronted by God, they deflect and deceive and disregard. And, and he deflects by summoning some other authority to contradict it. They're called the wise men and sorcerers of Egypt. The wisest man in the world is no match for the wisdom of God. It's a counterfeit miracle that they perform here. People hear the Bible, they understand very well what it says, and yet they deflect its message. That was just a book written by men. Uh, it's been translated over and over. How can we really know what the, what the message is? Or there are many interpretations of that passage. Those are just excuses 
to explain away the authority of God's Word. Now think about it. Who are they trying to convince with that argument? You, who's clearly coming to them, saying this is what the Lord says, repent and believe. They're not trying to convince you. They're trying to convince themselves. (laughs) They're trying to find something to grasp onto that they might be able to deflect. And when Pharaoh finds that, he deceives himself. He finds someone else who will tell him what he wants to hear and in this case can see the magicians did in like manner their enchantments. There are plenty of counterfeits in the world, but there is no replacement for the gospel. Oh, you can go to ten steps. You, you can find all kinds of self-help things, but, but you're like me. When you see a Theta Lewis, when you see someone who radiates Christ, when you see someone truly transformed by the power of the gospel, you know it's the real deal. And you might find some way to try to explain it away, but you know whenever you see it. You also know a counterfeit whenever you see it. And Pharaoh deceives himself. And verse 13 says that he is deflected and deceived himself. Then in verse 13, then and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Deflecting and deceiving not laying down the arms, but entrenching only increases the hardness of your heart. You heard His Word? You seen His work? Don't deflect. Don't self-deceive. Don't harden your heart. It will only lead to disregard and that leads to destruction. Look at the end of verse 13. Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And I think five of the saddest words in this entire section of the narrative, and he did not heed them. He did not heed the words of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. There's the human side and the God side. Is that God's fault or Pharaoh's? Do you think Pharaoh will be able to stand before God one day and say, I didn't know. I was deceived. I mean, this, this culture that you've placed me in has set me up for these wise men to come and deceive me. I just followed along with, with what everyone else was doing. He won't. And neither will you. Look back at verse 12, and I'll close with this. I'll end with this grace. For every man threw down his rod, even after Pharaoh deflected, even after he caused the magicians, every man threw down his rod, and they became as a serpent. So now you have two counterfeits. Here's God's message. It was proven and confirmed. And here's this other worldly authority, and their message was confirmed. But look at the end of verse 12. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. God graciously once again warns Pharaoh to listen. Aaron's staff swallows the magician's staff. wonder how much of the world you've already swallowed. <laughs> Whatever path of sin that you've taken, I can promise you, God's grace, the cross, 
can swallow all of that up and wash you clean. Amen? Sit by your heads. John twelve forty eight. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to judge, but to save. But He goes on to say, He who rejects Me and does not receive My saying has one that judges him. It's the word that I spoke. That's what will judge him at the last day. How many times has the Lord brought the message to you? Don't deflect. Don't deceive. Don't disregard the God God and the clear gospel that He's brought to you once again. Don't harden your heart. Receive the mercy of the Lord. Father, as we come before You, we thank You for the truth. We thank You, though, that while we were yet sinners, still sinners, still in our sin, Christ shed His blood for us. And we thank You that you can think back in my life, Lord, as a 20-something-year-old man, how many times You graciously pursued me and brought me the Gospel over and over again only to reject. But then one day, You had my heart in the right place and I responded, Father, I pray that today would be that day for many people that are listening here they repent and believe and be able to rejoice receive what Gareth did what Pharaoh would have we ask it all in Jesus precious name Amen you stand we're going to sing together in response to the Lord Show us Christ. If you don't know Him, you can come to Him today.